Amen. Thank you, Todd. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed for the Gospel Project, and thanks for all the teachers that care for the kids. Um, happy Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. Hope that everybody got their fill of pumpkin pie and turkey and all that good stuff. Uh, my name is Tad Skinner. I'm on staff here, and uh, we're in the uh, book of Philippians, if you're new here. Uh, it's been fantastic to be going through this book. We're reminded week after week of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so it's just been fantastic to, to be going through this uh, short little book. And just as a reminder, if you uh, haven't been here, just to remind you, the Apostle Paul uh, has written this letter to the church of Philippi, and one of the key themes of this book is joy. And we actually see the last time that he mentions joy in this passage that we'll, we'll talk about this morning. It's a letter of encouragement. And in chapter 4, he encouraged, he's encouraging the Philippians to stand firm in Christ. So in this passage we'll read today, he begins by acknowledging the gift that the Philippians gave him. If you remember, uh, the Philippians gave him a gift. And then he, he goes forward in just further encouragement to stand firm in Christ. So we're going to jump right in. We're in the fourth chapter of Philippians, so you'll find it on page, uh, I have to tell a Yoda joke. Um, you can blame one of my kids. I can't remember if it was, it was my son or my daughter that, that told me this. So why was eight afraid of seven? Not because seven, eight, nine. It's a Yoda joke. Because six, seven, eight. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> All right, so that's the page we're on. We're on page 678 of the Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those and uh, follow along. Page 678 of the Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. And if you don't understand that joke, ask somebody after the service, and maybe they'll explain it to you. So uh, we're in chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 10 through 14. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. And Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet... It was kind of you to share my trouble. So first things first, uh, let's notice that there's yet another of one of the most quotable uh, verses in the Bible in this passage right here. Uh, Philippians has been chock full, and it seems like every other week we're coming upon a passage that many people are familiar with, a passage that even some of our, in our society are, are familiar with. So you may disagree, but in our culture today, I think that Philippians 4.13 is even more quotable than John 3.16. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's uh, get to this now. What in the world does this verse mean? Does this mean that you can do anything you set your mind to as long as you just believe? Like the uh, five foot three, 120 pounds, 20 year old that wants to play middle linebacker for the Cardinals. Is that what that means? Or does it mean that Christ wants to strengthen you to achieve your biggest dreams. Like uh, the, the, the student who wants to get good grades so they can get a scholarship so that they don't have, so their family doesn't have to pay, uh, doesn't have the financial burden of paying for school. 
That's a good thing, right? Is that what that verse means? Or does it mean that you're guaranteed to beat the worst of odds if you just love God enough, if you just trust him enough? Like the woman who has terminal breast cancer. If you just trust him enough, then God will give you what you want. My uh, daughter, Caden, was in gymnastics a few years ago, and uh, written on this wall, written on, on the wall where she practiced was this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what do little seven, eight, nine-year-old gymnasts want more than anything in the world? They want to be in the Olympics, not just in the Olympics, they want to be a gold medal winning gymnast, right? Olympic gymnast. So is that what that verse means? Does that verse mean that if, if you just believe hard enough, it's just important enough, then that's what you'll get. You'll be an Olympic gymnast. Well, this, this verse doesn't mean any of those things. But wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what it meant? Uh, I don't have any, I've told you this before, if you've ever sat next to me, you know um, that I don't have any musical ability at all. Um, but wouldn't it be wonderful if this verse meant that if I just trust God enough, if I just believe him enough, that I could take Austin's role on Sunday mornings, or, or that I could be a backup singer for Beyonce. So that would be awesome, wouldn't it, <laughs> to be able to do that, if that's what that meant. Well, that's the way that the world seems to want to interpret this verse. And sadly, it's the way that, that many in the church, many of us, want to interpret this verse as well. If we just believe enough, if we just have enough passion, if we just say the right things, if we just do the right things, then God will give us our heart's desire. He'll do whatever we want, as though God were a magic genie that we call on when we want something really, really bad or when something's really important to us. And finally on this topic, have you seen the new Stephen Curry basketball shoes? shoes? I've got a picture up here. I don't know if you can see it or not. Um, they don't even bother to put the whole verse on there. It just says, I can do all things, dot, dot, dot pretty telling of our culture today. They even cut out the magic genie. The focus is on me. I can do all things. So how do we get to a place, all of those things are wrong. That's not what this verse means. So how do we get to a place where we are so far off in interpreting scripture? Well, it's context. We have to know the context. So if we just pull verses out of context, we end up way far away from what God intends his scripture to mean. So let's back up and see the context of before we understand further verse 13. What does this mean? So all the while remembering that this passage that we just read, Philippians 4, 10 through 14, is set in the larger context of standing firm in Christ. That's the context, standing firm in Christ. So first, notice in verse 10 that the church at Philippi had concerns for Paul. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So in review, uh, remember that Paul had founded the church at Philippi, and then he founded it on his missionary journeys. And then he left uh, to go found other churches to go further his missionary journeys. And he had kept in contact with the church. And the church at Philippi had sent a gift to Paul in his time of need via Epaphroditus and his companions. We read about that in chapter 2, if you remember. And Paul had already sent word of thanks. He'd already said thanks to the church at Philippi earlier for the gift. So the Philippians loved Paul both spiritually, uh, by praying for him, and physically, by caring for his needs. And that was meaningful and noticed by Paul. 
Remember what he wrote earlier in chapter 1, Philippians 1, 3 through 5. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So partnership in the gospel, what, what a great thing when, uh, that the church noticed Paul's needs. And it's a great thing when people notice your needs, isn't it? Especially when you don't even have to ask. So even the great apostle Paul had needs. He spoke earlier in chapter 2 of having needs. And in verse 14, he voices appreciation by saying, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So clearly, Paul recognized that he had needs. He was in prison when he wrote this. He was totally dependent upon, the need, upon uh, his friends to provide for his needs, to provide food for him, to provide uh, clothing for warmth in the winter. So we all have needs. We all have struggles. We all have difficulties. And there's no shame in that. But think back to the last wedding or two that you attended. Uh, most of them, at least um, that I've been to, have vows that include something like for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, in richer or poorer. And we don't like to think about, we don't spotlight the, the worse or the sickness or the poor aspect of those vows. And that's, that's not often what we highlight about ourselves. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to that. There are people that I'm sure you know that uh, trumpet loudly and at length about all the problems they have. They're constantly complaining. But most people don't share their needs. I think most people keep those to themselves. So if that's you, if you struggle to let others know about your, your difficulties, your hardships, the things you struggle with, your needs, then I would encourage you to let someone into your life enough so that they can see those needs. If you're scared to death of disappointing others, if you're ruled by a fear that others are judging you, then take a chance and talk to somebody about that. If you suffered a great loss and you walk around with a stiff upper lip um, acting like nothing happened, then share that hurt with somebody. Let somebody else know that you're struggling. If you struggle to make ends meet financially, uh, maybe that's because of some unforeseen circumstance or maybe that's because you don't know how to say no either to yourself or to family and friends, then let somebody else know about that struggle. Now that's risky, isn't it? it? Takes a lot of guts to be able to do that. But that's what we're called to do. To be a Christian is to live in community. And Christian community isn't just about uh, the joyful, happy times. It's about sharing those struggles and sharing those needs. One of the great joys of the Christian life is the privilege of being able to help others who are in need. And there are no solo or individual or independent Christians in the Bible. And there shouldn't be in our churches either. So be honest and be vulnerable and let somebody into your life. If you're not part of one of our small groups, I would encourage you to get, get involved. Go all in. And if you're part of a small group and they don't normally share their needs or their struggles, then lead the way. Be open and be vulnerable, really honest. We spoke earlier of the partnership in the gospel that Paul had with the Philippians. So I would ask, do you have the joy of Christian, Christian community as you partner in the gospel with others? That's the life that Paul led. Paul led a life of sharing his life with others, of Christian community. From the point of his belief that Jesus is the risen Savior and Lord, 
he was constantly in community with other believers. And now he's dependent, as he writes this letter, he's dependent upon the love and the care of other believers. So Paul's needs were evident, and they were well known. Are yours. So we all have needs. We all have struggles. We all should partner in the gospel by meeting those needs. Uh, but let's move ahead to the heart of this passage and, and talk further about that most quotable verse. So looking again at uh, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the world has enough, more than enough, of a lot of things. Uh, the world has more than enough toothpaste options. Uh, the world has more than enough um, uh, life hacks, more than enough uh, Pokemon to capture and collect. Some of you might disagree with that. Um, I don't think anybody will disagree that the world has more than enough politicians of less than desirable character. Um, the world has more than enough TV channels and entertainment options, right? But one thing that the world is in short supply of is contentment. Everyone is craving after contentment. Everyone wants to find peace. Everyone wants to find some rest. Everyone wants to be content. And there are so many things uh, in our world that are touted as helping us to find contentment, helping us to find that contentment. Uh, many things that people try to shape their lives around to help them to find that peace. So let me give you a couple of big picture examples. Uh, we could talk about some, some smaller examples, some material possessions and things like that that people try to shape their lives around. But let me give you some big picture examples of that. Uh, first, the underlying message of the new sexual and gender ethic of today is the promise that the freedom to do whatever you want, uh, whatever you want to, whenever you want to with your body, that that will produce contentment. That will make you happy. That will give you joy. But that promise is already starting to come crashing down. And we see that in some real world examples as people begin to uh, grapple with these real-life issues of, of grown men using the same restroom, for instance, as their little girls, or of sports teams possibly being combined, men's and women's or boys' and girls' sports teams being combined, thereby uh, lessening the possibility of some people being able to play sports, girls, for instance, being able to play sports. So what promises happiness and contentment and freedom from strife and difficulty won't and can't deliver? And I'm using this example, but we could be talking about heterosexuality. We put heterosexuality on a pedestal and make that into an idol as well, don't we? One more big picture example. Consider our political systems. We, we just went through a, an awful election, and um, they've already started with the new election. Four years from now, already started campaigning for that, right? Already raising money for that election. But both major parties, as well as the minor parties, contend that their platform, their, their ideology, their perspective will solve all of society's ills. Uh, so vote Democrat or vote Libertarian and all of your problems will be solved, will be content. That will produce contentment. 
But those promises never have delivered in the history of our country, and they never will either. So why? Why, why won't these things or anything else ultimately satisfy? Do you feel that way? That nothing in this world can satisfy completely? Does that, does that strike as true to you? So sure, you may find a nice job or a, uh, a nice vacation, a new job, nice vacation, or um, a new relationship, that that might produce contentment for a time. That might give you peace or joy for a time. But it never lasts. That new job, you find out that it's got difficulties. Or you've got to come back home from that nice vacation. Or that uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, husband, wife, friend that you have lets you down and causes some difficulty or problem in your life. Those, that type of contentment, those things that we put our hopes in to provide contentment don't last. No circumstances in this world, no material things, no, no freedoms that are given, nothing in this world can give you contentment. And why is that? Why can nothing in this world give us contentment? Well, could it be that we weren't made for this world? Do you have that sense that things are never enough? We always want more of this or less of that. And it's always that way. That's because we weren't designed to be filled by the things of this world. Instead, we were, we were designed to be fulfilled by eternal things, things that only Christ can give us, namely a relationship with him. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, who's here today. Maybe you're, you're here just because uh, your friends, you're here for Thanksgiving, your friends, your family dragged you here, or maybe you just decided to check us out uh, this Sunday morning. We are very glad you're here. Uh, we didn't have our normal greeting time, but stick around after and uh, take part in that, the joy of Christian community that we have. Hopefully you'll get to know some of the great people around here. But do you feel a lack of contentment in your life? That things aren't perfect? They're not the way they're meant to be. <clears throat> Ultimate contentment can be found only in a relationship with Jesus. Everyone's life is centered around something, and it's best centered around Jesus, a God who became a man and died for us. And if that's intriguing to you, then I would encourage you to come and talk to me after the service or talk to somebody else around you about that. So you see, we all want contentment. We all chase after it. We try to fill perceived gaps in our joy and happiness with something that we are hoping will make us content. We fill it with work, with kids, uh, with our achievements at school, with new hobbies. And those aren't bad things. Uh, but we also, some people, fill them with substances, fill them with fantasy lives on the internet, and those are certainly not good for us and certainly aren't sustaining, aren't able to sustain us. But did you know that God's will is that all Christians would be content? God's will is that all Christians would be content. Now, does that sound strange to you? That you're not supposed to be striving, you're not supposed to be feeling weighted down by life struggles, that instead you're supposed to be content? All those who believe in the name of Christ should be content. In Hebrews 13, the writer says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. 
for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we're told that we're to be content. We don't have to look, in this case, to money to provide us, the material possessions, to provide us with contentment. And in Timothy 6, we hear a similar chorus. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So this, this world has nothing to offer us in the way of contentment. For the believer in Christ, a life devoted to things not found in this world, namely a life devoted to Christ, will lead to contentment, and that is great gain for us. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians, spoke of a great trouble in his life, this thorn in his flesh, this difficulty that he was having. He was in agony about And in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I can imagine what some of you are thinking, and that's because I have the same thoughts. Um, First, you're possibly thinking, does this mean that I'm not supposed to be active, or I'm not supposed to be assertive, that that I'm not supposed to have goals in my life, that the way to contentment is just to be a lump on the log and let life happen to me? That's how I find contentment. Well, that's, of course, not what I'm saying. Just look at the life of Paul as an example. Here's Paul writing this, how to be content. Did he have a passive life? He was active. He had initiative. He was driven. He had a purpose in life. Definitely not a passive, passionless individual. The second thing that you might be thinking is, but you don't know about the hardships that I face. You haven't seen my bank account. You don't know about the health issues that I have. You don't know how difficult my advisor is or my professor is, what a difficult relationship that is. And you're right. I don't know all of those particular issues. So, and Paul doesn't either, of course. So why why should we listen to Paul as he tells us about contempt? Why should we trust him? Well, here is a guy who would go into a city. He would share the gospel. He would get the rubbish kicked out of him. He would get up and go into the next city, and then he'd repeat the process. He'd do the same thing again. So why should we trust this guy telling us about contentment? Well, it's precisely for that reason, precisely because he was a man who had seen it all. Prior to believing in Jesus, he had chased the big dream, and he'd found it wanting. He was one of the elite uh, Pharisees, one of the elite scholars in the Jewish religion, Some people said that he was on track, like his end goal was to be the high priest, uh, the highest office in the Jewish religion. So many accomplishments, yet did all of those things that he had, did they produce contentment in his life? Well, he said no. He said no. So what happened? Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that was the start of his learning to be content. He was chosen by God, wrote uh, 13 Uh, letters, 13 books of our Bible, of our New Testament, 
uh, discipled, planted lots of, of churches, discipled countless ministry leaders, uh, countless people who led in those churches. All of those accomplishments after he met Christ. But listen, did they produce contentment? Did all of those accomplishments after Christ produce contentment? Well, he said no. Those didn't produce contentment in him either. Well, what about all of the hardships? We just read about the weaknesses, uh, hardships, calamities, difficulties that he faced. Did those things produce contentment in his life? Well, no, those things didn't produce contentment either. So how did he find contentment? Well, look back at Philippians one last time, verses 11 through 12. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So don't, don't miss this. He said that he had learned contentment. He had learned how to be content. Now, isn't that encouraging? I'm really amazed by that. Here's this great man, Paul, who had to learn contentment. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's not something that you're born with. It's not something that comes naturally to us to be content. If Paul had to learn it, then surely I must be able to learn it as well. So how? How did he learn to be content? Well, Paul learned it during times of loss and during times of gain. He learned it in times of great disappointment, like we read, these weaknesses, difficulties. We see it here as he speaks of being in hunger and being in need. So many plans of Paul didn't work out either. Uh, if those of you that are familiar with the Bible, you remember in the book of Acts, uh, chapter, I think it's 16, Paul had intended on going to this certain region of Asia called Bithynia. On his, he's on his missionary journeys, and he was going to go into Bithynia, and God prevented him from going. And instead, God said, no, you need to go to Macedonia. And what happened in Macedonia? What's one of the things that happened in Macedonia? He planted this very church. He planted this church. That was his, wasn't his intention to go to Macedonia, but God directed him there. So Paul learned to be content in all situations, in doing what he would planned and in disruptions to his plans. When he had uh, lots of people and food around the Thanksgiving table, and when he had little of either around the Thanksgiving table. His contentment wasn't found in or dependent upon his circumstances. So if contentment isn't found in circumstances, then where is it found? Well, here we get to the real meaning of, chapter, of verse 13. It was found in Christ. The secret of contentment is Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul's saying, I've learned to be content when I get what I want, and I've learned to be content when I get nothing or very little of what I want. But I'm able to be content in either of those situations only through the power of Christ, only because of Christ. Now, isn't that amazing that it's not based on our circumstances? It's only based on Jesus. The secret to contentment is trusting God in such a way that your focus isn't on your circumstances. So what are the all things in this verse? What does that mean? 
That's abundance and hunger, plenty and need. That's the context that we need to look at when we start quoting verse 13. So given the context, a good paraphrase of this verse is, I can be content in all circumstances through him who strengthens me. So this verse doesn't mean that God will make you an NBA MVP or that he will make you the uh, gold medal winning Olympic gymnast. Now he might do that, of course, but that's not what this verse means. Rather, it means that it matters not what, what's going on in your life. Those things, those circumstances, don't add to or detract from your contentment in him. So Paul is saying, here's a summary of, of these five verses. Paul's saying, thank you for the gift, Philippians. Really helpful, very gracious of you. Thank you for giving it to me. But I'm already content, regardless of the gift. And now let me show you how you can be content as well. And then he goes on to show them that the secret to contentment is Christ. So contentment is the ability to stand in any and every circumstance because Christ supplies whatever is needed from his riches, which we'll talk about next week. Now that may be physical help that you need. That may be reassurance of your faith when you're not getting that physical help that you need. That may be what God supplies for you. When Christ is central in our lives, when he's our center, then we won't focus on circumstances, and we will be able to be content. So here's contentment right here. The thing that everyone seeks after, everyone is craving it. We talked about it's in very short supply in our world today, and it's found in trusting Christ no matter what the circumstances are. So our circumstances, even the good things, they're not the prize, so that um, retirement nest egg, um, a life, uh, a legacy of, even a legacy of, of sharing Christ with others, lots of disciples in your path, those are good things, but that's not the prize. Christ is the prize, a Savior who loves you and offers a relationship with you. That is what we are after. That is the only thing that will give us contentment. That is the only thing that provides peace in our lives. But we are so easily distracted, aren't we? We're so easily distracted. We're distracted by several things. I, I called them contentment killers. So let's spend just a moment and talk about these five things. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're not content, if you don't have peace, if you're struggling, if, if your eyes are on your circumstances, instead of on Christ, then I would encourage you to look for, it's probably more than one, it is for me, but look for one of these things that you really need to work on and you really need to submit to God, that you really need to talk with a friend about. So we talked quite a bit earlier about other things that we seek to find contentment in, even good things, family, career advancement. Um, really what we're talking about is idolatry. We make idols out of things. So we won't spend any more time about this, but idolatry, shaping your life around something other than Christ, that's the first thing that, that distracts us or keeps us from being content. Second thing is worry. We're afraid of losing those things that we make idols of. And Chuck, Pastor Chuck talked about that last week. We read Philippians 4, 
6 and 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So be thankful for what God has given you for this day. Don't let worry capture your heart and your mind. The things that we tend to worry about, as we talked about, though they may be important things, they may be good things, are really just rubbish compared to the treasure of Christ. We're also easily distracted by envy, envy of what others have. So it's not enough that we make idols out of things. It's not enough that we worry that we're going to lose those idols or that we don't have enough of those idols. We have to also covet what other people have. So it's hard to trust Christ. It's hard to keep your focus on him when you're thinking about or coveting that nice um, family that this person has or that nice house or, or vehicle that this person has. So if your eyes are focused over here on these things rather than focused on God's word, rather than focused on your relationship with him, then you're not going to find contentment. It's going to distract you from being content. A lack of patience is another contentment killer. We, we live in a give-it-to-me-now-or-else society. And if our appetites aren't totally fulfilled within the moment that we have them, then we begin to get frustrated. We begin to get angry. And that includes a lack of patience in God's promises, in God keeping his promises to us. We're so demanding of God, like the prodigal son who wants his inheritance right now. Give it to me right now. A lack of patience in God's timing for our lives leads to a lack of contentment. And finally, there's doubt and disbelief, which I think is really just a result of all of the others. You idolize things that don't bring contentment. You worry that you'll lose them. You begin to covet what other people have. You have a lack of patience in, in God giving you contentment. God, make me content, even though you're, you're worrying and you're idolizing and you're coveting. Things aren't going the way that you want them to, and so you begin to doubt the truthfulness of God's word, or you begin to doubt God's goodness. So listen, Paul knows of what he speaks, doesn't he? We can trust his witness. As he sits in prison writing about contentment, he very easily could have been focused on the idols of his past life. He had many. He very easily could have been worried about, about losing um, something, worried to the point of distraction about where his next meal was going to come from. Right? He could have been envious of what others have, namely their freedom or their status. He could have had a lack of patience in God. God, you... You're not doing what I wanted you to do. I'm not content sitting here in prison. This is not the way that my life was supposed to turn out. He could have had a lack of patience with God. Or he could have had doubt. He could have been disbelieving that God is good to him. So here was Paul, slated for so many good things in the world as one of the top Pharisees. So many good things in the past that he could have had. And now here's Paul in prison after multiple beatings, multiple stonings, small in stature, stammering in speech, the leader of a small 
fledgling religion that's opposed to, or that's opposed by the, the larger Jewish religion, opposed by the Roman authorities. And he's able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Utterly meaningless to the world, preaching that a crucified man is the way to salvation. Total nonsense to the world. And yet he's able to say, I am content and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's learned the secret of contentment and that it is in Christ himself. So Philippians 4.13 isn't about chasing after your dreams. It's not about unleashing your passion or doing anything you want with the help of your magic genie. Instead, it's meant to be the great witness of one who has, who has Christ and finds him of utmost value, joyous beyond measure, and ultimately satisfying. Paul lived a life of extreme highs and extreme lows, and he found the great constant in his life. The one thing that gave him meaning in his life was Jesus. The great witness of Paul is that in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, Jesus is the only thing that made him content. Now, none of us are in prison right now. But many of us face difficulties, hardships of various kinds. So can we say that we're content? Can you say that you're content? And that your contentment is found in Christ, that you have a lasting contentment? Can any of us, no matter what our circumstances, can any of us say that? Well, that kind of contentment has to be learned, and it has to be nurtured right now. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor of, of yesteryear, said, uh, had some wise words about learning contentment. He said, you have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to earth. So you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardeners care. Now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace that God has sown in it. So we must nurture our contentment now and at all times. Don't wait until the trouble comes. Don't wait until you find yourself staring at difficult circumstances, doubting God. If you're discontent, if you're not content, then speak to somebody about that. Get help from somebody. Let them know your struggles and your needs. Admit that your circumstances make you sad or they make you uptight. They make you angry. That your focus is on your circumstances rather than on Christ. We were reminded earlier that we all have needs. And one of the joys of Christian community is being able to share those needs. And what a joy it is when, when people share in those and care for us. But contentment is found even when our perceived needs aren't met, even when that Christian community fails us and doesn't come through for us. We're going to read, um, God willing, in the spring, through, go through the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And there's a beautiful passage in chapter 3, so just a sneak peek.
at that. Habakkuk the prophet writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's just beautiful, isn't it? But if you're like me, it's crushing too. How in the world can I possibly trust God in the midst of dark and difficult times? How in the world is that possible to do that? Well, the only way that I can do that is if I remember the one who gave up everything for me. The one who hung on a cross, whose friends had betrayed him, had deserted him, had left him, who hung, hung on the cross and died for us. The one who lost everything, all of his material possessions, his clothes were taken from him and were raffled off. The one who even God, who lost God's love. God the Father um, turned his face away from Jesus as Jesus took his sin, took my sin upon himself. So when I think of Jesus and I realize that he was able to be content no matter the circumstances, then I realize that I can too because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I can do all things because Christ did it for me. And when I go to him, when I rest in him, when I find my peace in him, when my identity is wrapped up in him, then I can be content in all things. So on this Thanksgiving weekend, we have much to be thankful for. But I wonder, where do you find your contentment? Where are you looking to fill yourself up? Where are you looking to find joy and happiness? Do you seek after contentment through relationships, which will inevitably change? Through your circumstances, which are always changing? Do you look for it through material possessions, which are sure to change and just fade away? What do you put your trust and your hope in? We spent a lot of time on the word um, rubbish in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 8 through 10 reads, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So true contentment comes from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and entrusting him no matter what your circumstances are. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, that you have given everything to us. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and, and nothing that we have came without your hand giving it to us. All things are yours. God, help us not to put our trust, not to put our hope, not to seek contentment in things that you uh, give us, circumstances, material things, relationships. Instead, help us to put our hope and our trust and our faith in what is lasting and eternal relationship with you. Help us to seek to find contentment in you and in you alone.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.